This is an ABC podcast. Why is it that some sports become hugely popular to watch and to play while others come and go? How come tennis is one of those top three or four sports that's a global success story? Hi, I'm Amanda Smith, and we'll have a look at the origins of tennis, lawn tennis, later here on Sporty, and why right from the start, it was a more progressive, even radical game than others. Hey, when you go for a walk or a run, have you gotten into the habit of using a fitness tracker that you wear on your wrist? Does this sort of wearable device or an app on your phone that also tracks what you're doing, does it help you to be active? I'm at the finish line of a Saturday morning park run as people are starting to come in. So you've just come in from your 5K run, you're checking your wrist. What are you measuring? I use my Apple Watch to measure my time and pace. And what difference does that make to you and to your activity, do you reckon? When I'm actually running, it's really helpful in terms of, you know, helping me keep my pace and and give me a sense that I'm achieving what I'm trying to do. So whether that's trying to go a bit further or a bit faster or maintain a bit more consistency. And I get... I'm a scientist and I'm constantly doing maths in my head, so having these sort of numbers gives me the thing that sort of keeps me going when I'm running. And what's your name? Scott. Do you use a fitness tracker or app? I don't use a specific tracker, but I do use the step count on the phone, so I have that with me always. For running and walking? Yeah, mostly I just walk, so I, yes, I use it for whenever I'm out and about walking. And I hear you've just done your 200th park run. That is correct, yes. <laughs> I, I'm visiting from London, so I was so happy to be able to do my 200th here. Congratulations, congratulations. In what way do you find it useful to count your steps? Well, I think, uh, number one, that you know how much you've done every day. And just so that you know, I've spent two weeks in quarantine in the hotel and I made it a minimum of 10,000 steps a day in my hotel room. I peaked at 15,000 one day when I had lots of energy. Just and, walking around the room? Well, uh, yeah, I had a little uh, route and it was like 25 metres sort of from the door to the window, round a box and back to the door again. And I used to have to do that 600 times a day to get to 10,000. And if I had energy, I'd do more. So uh, it was it was a great way to keep sort of a check on what I was doing in the room every day. Otherwise, I think you could just get a little bit lazy and stay in your pyjamas and not do anything. What do you use? I use a Garmin watch and my Strava app on my phone. And the reason why I've got both is because I just get more information. I can have different screens. You know, I'm not very good in my mind of knowing how fast I'm running. So if I'm slacking off, I look at my watch and I go, oh, I've dropped my pace. I need to pick it up. And that happened on this run. You know, I'm dropped off a little bit and I go, oh, I'm running a bit slow. I need to pick it up a bit. So you find it a, a kind of motivator? Absolutely. It keeps you going, you know. And, and also because you can track other runs, it tells you how you're going compared to previous runs. So I know how fast I was running one month ago, six months ago, a year, a couple of years ago, and I know how fast I'm running now. And also the Garmin has my heart rate as well. So I can measure my heart rate, you know, check what my heart rate was six months ago running this at a certain pace and now, and that'll tell me uh, whether or not I'm fitter or not. You know, it tells me my actual effort. Yeah, so presumably when you can see that improvement, it's encouraging. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
And what's your name? Tim. Tim, thank you very no much. No problem. Thank you, Amanda. My name is Faye. So now you've just come in from your 5K run and you're using a, a fitness tracker. What are you using it for? Time, heart rate, how much calorie I burned. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you're more active using the apps? Absolutely. Uh, some uh, like Apple Watch, they have some like games. So you, get, you have to run certain distance to get the medal. So that kind of motivates me, like a game, I want to get it. You've just come in from your 5K run. I have. You've got uh, your device on your, on your wrist. What do you use it for? I use it for tracking any activity. So running, when I walk, when I do spin classes. And I also use it to see if I'm standing up, you know, as often as I should in the day. <laughs> and do you think it helps you to be more active? Yes, I do. Because they've got rings on the watch. The red ring is for how much movement you've done, and it's based on kilojoules. The second ring is for exercise, and you're meant to exercise 30 minutes every day, and this tracks your heart rate, so it can tell you when you're in a state of exercising. And the third ring is standing, and you need to stand for a minute every hour for 12 hours a day. And so you find all that useful to have as a reminder? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's good. And if you look down and go, oh, the blue ring's not very far, I need to get up and start moving. I don't know, it just gives you that little prod. And if I'm close to those rings ending, I will go out and do something so that I can close the rings. It's a weird thing, but yeah. And what's your name? Sarah. Sarah, thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. Dr Liliana Laranjo is from the University of Sydney's Faculty of Medicine and Health and she wanted to find out if fitness trackers and apps do help to increase your physical activity and by how much. She's led some research that's analysed the data from around 7,500 adults. Liliana, first of all, in Australia, how prevalent are fitness trackers and mobile health apps these days? Yeah, so the smartphone use in Australia is very high. It's around 90%. And fitness trackers is around a quarter of the population. And also a quarter of people use health apps to track physical activities. And it's uh, rapidly increasing. And so that's why I thought this was a good idea for a study to understand whether these tools actually help people be more physically active. Yeah, well, your review found that people who use a wearable fitness tracker or app increased their step count by nearly 2,000 a day. How significant an increase is that? You know, it sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, we were quite surprised, actually, because around 2,000 steps per day is very significant in terms of health benefits, lower mortality, benefits related to prevention of cancer and, and better cardiovascular outcomes. And so an increase of 2,000 steps is not a huge increase. It's doable and it has significant health benefits. But do you know what the drop-off rate is with people who have activity trackers, you know, once the, the novelty wears off. Absolutely. That's going to be my next area of research <laughs> because ah. we know this works, but we also know that people stop using their trackers 
at a very high rate. So around half of the people who buy a fitness tracker stop using it in around six months. And so that's uh, what we're trying to understand. Why is that? Is it that the novelty wears off? Is it that it's not personalized enough? Because one of the things that we found in our study was that personalization was associated with a higher effectiveness of these interventions in promoting physical activity. And so we're trying to understand what exactly we can do to keep people engaged with these interventions. Tell me more about uh, what you mean by personalization, especially since you're suggesting that that does mean people will will stick with the tracker or app and and that would actually consolidate behavioral change. Yeah, so a very simple example is most trackers and apps nowadays have that 10,000 step goal and there's actually not a lot of evidence behind this 10,000 number. And one example of personalizing would be um, depending on the number of steps that a given person is already walking per day, then doing small increases in the number of steps. And that's also something that we found in our study is that starting low and progressing slowly is associated with higher effectiveness. So small increases in steps is better than trying to immediately achieve that 10,000 goal because that could be something that actually demotivates people. I mean, you can do it while the novelty period is going and you feel very motivated and you're walking 10,000 steps per day, but then when you stop achieving that, it's very easy to then just drop off and stop using the tracker because you're not really getting the 10,000 steps. Whereas if it's a more um, easier to achieve goal that you can then increase throughout time, then that might be able to keep you motivated in the long term as well. So, you know, before someone maybe invests in one of the more expensive smart watches, those sort of trackers, would you recommend maybe starting with um, an app on your phone and taking it from there? Yeah, you don't need to have an expensive fitness tracker to have these health benefits and increase your physical activity. So every smartphone nowadays has sensors that measure physical activity, and they also come with apps to show you the graphs with your number of steps per day. And so clinicians can actually recommend those native apps on the smartphones to help patients be more physically active. And so that's a good way to start. Um, start with a lower number of steps goal, doesn't have to be the 10,000 steps, and then increase it slowly as you gain more confidence and, and motivation. And if you then decide to become a runner or an athlete, then you can invest in a more expensive fitness tracker. So, Liliana, do you use one of these trackers or apps yourself? Yeah. Uh, so I started using um, a Fitbit five years ago, and that prompted me to start running. I wasn't a runner before. And since then, I've uh, ran two half marathons. So, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I ended up uh, being motivated enough to take up running. So it certainly worked for you. Dr Liliana Laranjo is from the Faculty of Medicine and Health at Sydney University. The research findings she led are published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. 
And it's Amanda Smith with you here on Sporty. Now, sometimes, you know, a fitness tracker can tell you things you weren't expecting, as I discovered at the park run. Uh, my name is Abhay. Yeah. So you're using a fitness tracker? Uh, yeah, I've been using it for about four years now, and I'm really happy that I did because it saved my life. Wow. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I work a high-pressure job and middle-aged men doing crazy things. So I was training for a triathlon. Uh, I'd done a couple of half marathons, so I thought my endurance was pretty good. And uh, triathlon slightly different, very scientific training, and the tracker was helping me pace myself with the training. And about a week before my first competition, I noticed that my heart rate was too high for the effort I was putting in. And uh, I started to think, like, is, that's not really what it should be. And so I took a unilateral step to go and get myself checked out. Uh, I had, like, basic level fitness checks, but uh, I kind of found someone who says, you're not taking part, something's wrong. And uh, long story cut short, they found that I had a, a valve defect in my heart, which I had been born with. And I had never known. And you wouldn't have known if you weren't using that fitness tracker? I wouldn't have had the insight to know what the relationship was between effort and heart rate. And without that tracker, I, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you. I would have gone for that race and probably had some kind of arrhythmia or something. My heart would have given out or my valve would have burst or some horrific uh, ending. How do you feel when you think about that? Well, follow the data, as they say. If it helps people take charge of their own fitness and their own well-being, I'm really happy about that. Hi, thank you very much for speaking with me, and I'm thrilled that you're standing here alive and well. Yeah. <laughs> I am too. Thanks very much. <laughs> What makes one sport hugely popular and enduring and played and watched around the world, while others might have their moment but don't ever reach that kind of global success? Tennis is one of the world's most watched and played games, but unlike the other top sports like soccer and cricket, lawn tennis didn't start out as something that was imagined for men only. And according to David Berry, who's the author of A People's History of Tennis, Tennis, this has given a more progressive edge to this sport. David Berry joins us from London. So let's talk first, David, about the invention of lawn tennis. When and where is the first recorded game played? The first game was in Knightsbridge on Wednesday, the 6th of May, 1874. And it's an exhibition game put on by a Welsh country gentleman called Major Walter Wingfield, who recently retired from the army, because he had this quite extraordinary idea of setting this lawn tennis set, and he'd advertised it in newspapers uh, uh, two or three weeks before, and wanted to give an exhibition of what the game would be like. And how did this retired army major, Walter Wingfield, come up with the game? It was very odd, really. Uh, I mean, he was retired, from, but it was only in his early 40s, uh, needing to support his family. And so he decided that he'd become an entrepreneur. 
And so he's looked around for some kind of inventions that he could actually make money out of. He had numerous ideas, uh, and lawn tennis was just one of them, but by far the most successful. And, well, it's not entirely clear where he got the idea. How much does his lawn tennis, though, owe to royal tennis or real tennis? Well, it owes the name, certainly, <laughs> and that was a very smart move because um, the good old Major Wingfield really needed to make money out of this game and he wanted to associate it with another game which had that sort of cachet. Royal tennis, real tennis, is an indoor game played on a stone court with a hard ball and it's always been a game of the aristocracy ever since it emerged from monasteries in the 12th, 13th century or so. Its heyday was in the 17th century in France. I think there were 200 courts in Paris alone. So Wingfield borrowed the name from tennis and borrowed some of the kind of strange words we have in tennis that I love and juice. Um, but bizarrely enough, I think the game that tennis, lawn tennis owes most to is croquet, that you play with mallets and you have to knock a ball through hoops. Croquet was the first game played by men and women together. In fact, Wimbledon and the All England uh, Lawn Tennis Club was set up as a croquet club originally yeah. and only took up in tennis when, um, when croquet started falling out of fashion. What, what were the technologies of the day that meant that this game of tennis was, was possible? Yeah, it's a very good question because you could say, why did it emerge at that particular moment in time? And one reason was that there were two basic technologies that allowed the game to be played. One is that there were soft rubber balls available. I mean, Charles Goodyear had invented a process called vulcanization for rubber in 1844 in Philadelphia, but, they, but the rubber balls really hadn't been widely available until about the 1870s. And tennis is played with a soft rubber ball. That makes it distinct from rackets and real tennis. The other thing it needed, Amanda, was... Um, something called a lawnmower. <laughs> and it was only until the 1827 that technology was invented. So it's the combination of having a lawn, a cut lawn, and a soft ball allowed tennis really to actually get going. And what were the elements that meant tennis succeeded and spread so quickly? I mean, by way of example, after that first demonstration match in London in 1874, it quickly spread that year across continental Europe and to North America, uh, by the next year to India and Brazil, and by 1878 it was being played in Melbourne, the home of the Australian Open that's currently underway. You're absolutely right. It spread like wildfire. I mean, the reason it spread and the reason it was a success, probably slightly different. I mean, it spread because London at the time was the hub of one of the biggest empires um, there's ever been, really. It had trading outposts everywhere. And so it was very easy for something to kind of start in London and soon be, you know, in America, soon be in Australia, soon be in South Africa. But why did it, you know, catch on? And that's an interesting question, I think. Um, I mean, on one level, it caught on because it was a bloody good game. It still is. It still is a fascinating game and a very involving game. And some of the other games that are played at the time, like Fives and Hildegarden uh, and even Badminton, don't quite have the fascination that tennis has. Also not as good games to watch. 
Um, tennis has always had that sense of being a performance game that people paid money to actually watch. Now, the first national lawn tennis tournament was held in England at Wimbledon in 1877. It was a, a singles comp for men. By 1884, there was ladies' singles as well. What did playing tennis uh, competitively or indeed socially do for women in those last decades of the 19th century? It did an enormous amount, even though it was a pastime and a sport for quite a privileged group of women, I think we we must admit that. You know, these were women that were from the upper middle classes. They were kind of women that had leisure. But those women were pathfinders, really. I mean, the most important aspect of this is that they redefined what the female body was allowed to do. Because there were sports that women were allowed to play in Victorian England and Empire, like archery, for example, and uh, horse riding and croquet. But those were always sports where there was no perspiration involved. (laughs) You could still have a decorum. You could still play croquet or archery without kind of moving. I mean, tennis gave a sense of, physicality, a sense of movement, a sense of using the body in a different way. The other aspect of it is that, as was said, um, when tennis is always a performance sport right from the very start. As, as you said, the Wimbledon Championships, four years after Wingfoot had invented the game, there was a whole circuit of tournaments around Britain. And in these tournaments, there were women's singles and mixed doubles. And that sense of earning your own money, these were paid. You know, These were women that were the first professional sportswomen. That was actually a crucial image, I think, for women as well. So there really was the sense of freedom about tennis and the sense of power. And in many ways, you know, it was one of the first demonstrations of what suffrage and equality would mean in our society. Was there... A time in its early history, though, where women could have been seriously marginalised from tennis? Yeah, there was. Because it wasn't as if the men that ran society you know, were going to allow this without a fight. And there was lots of contradictions in the male response to tennis. It was hmm, right from the very start. I mean, Wingfield aimed the game at men and women. On his tennis sets, there were pictures of women playing, where women played with the men. But as the game took on and as more men started playing it, there was lots of comments about how the fact that, you know, women couldn't possibly handle these heavy wooden rackets and they were going to damage themselves. Um, and so there was that kind of tittle-tattle going on all the time. But then it got as far as Wimbledon itself at the All England Tennis Club. And I think in 1878 or 1879, it's difficult to know because the minutes of the All England Tennis Club are incredibly private and nobody's ever allowed to see them. But there were certainly discussions that went on that the women's game needed to be easier. And Wimbledon suggested that if the women played with a lighter racket and a smaller court, that would be a kind of better game for them. But of course, once you start doing that, you start having a different game you can't play mixed doubles anymore. And it would have spiralled off, I think, to become a bit like women's football or women's cricket now, which has got far less resources than men's football and men's cricket. Um, But fortunately, the, the women players at the time were having none of this, and they really fought it very hard, and they won. I mean, partly because there were a lot of men that really liked playing mixed doubles. 
and the crowds enjoyed it as well. <laughs> so there were lots of economic reasons why the game should stay together. Yes. So in those early decades, what did tennis do for men? I mean, what did it offer men as a sport? You know, when the more I look at it, the more I get a sense that there was, how can I put this? a different version of masculinity that tennis allowed. I mean, the games of football and cricket, which was the classic Victorian game, and rugby were pretty tough. You know, they were played with hard balls, people got injured, they were great examples of strength. And tennis was different. Tennis required thought as well as kind of shots. It required finesse. And there were men in the late 19th century you know, the kind of men that you'd see as a country solicitor or a doctor, you know, GPs or so. It gave those men an outlet. And I think it also encouraged that kind of masculinity. And the major thing that stood out was that these were men that liked playing their sport with women. I mean, the cricketers used to um, look down on tennis players because they could they wanted to play with women. They were just obviously far too sissy. You know, they weren't kind of proper men or so. But the men who played tennis were having none of it, really, and stood up for a new way of being male. I think it was a very important aspect of tennis, and probably still is, actually. Well, it's interesting because you do still see that in top tennis. I mean, yes, you've got plenty of power hitters in the men's comp, but the best of them all for ages has been Roger Federer, who plays a, an elegant kind of game of great finesse. And then among the top women is Serena Williams, who's so strong and powerful. They both challenge ideas about masculinity and femininity in a way that you, that you say was inherent in lawn tennis pretty much right from the start. It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, you can imagine, um, you know, Serena Williams sort of playing Roger Federer. And in fact, in 1888, uh, these battle of the sexes, as they were termed, were very kind of popular at the time. And in Exmouth in 1888, they actually kind of arranged a, a battle of the sexes match between Lottie Dodd, who is very much like Serena Williams now, and Ernest Renshaw, who was as dapper as Roger Federer. So, you know, this has been something in tennis all the way through. I have to say, I'd love to see Roger Federer play Serena Williams. <laughs> well, I think it's worth noting that currently the three highest paid female athletes in the world are Naomi Osaka, Serena Williams and Ash Barty. So all tennis players, uh, it is the highest paid, highest profile sport for women. But those three are also all women of diverse cultural backgrounds. Uh, hopefully that sends out messages to young girls and boys of all backgrounds, that this can be a game for all of them. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yes, absolutely. Uh, for any sport to thrive, it has to have lots and lots of people who want to play it at, you know, all levels. And it also has to have lots and lots of people who want to watch the top people play. So it has to be a mass participation sport and a mass spectator sport. Now, I know that you're a keen tennis player yourself, David, and you started playing as a kid. Tell me about the first time you got to go to Wimbledon as a spectator. Oh, I was very excited. I just joined this tennis club and every year they had a kind of ballot draw for Wimbledon tickets because Wimbledon used to allocate half a dozen tickets to every tennis club in Britain. 
and I was put in the draw, even though I was only 14 years old. And I got, so I got one of the tickets to the chagrin of a lot of the other members who hadn't had tickets for all the years they'd been playing. Um, but it was for the first day of the first Open Championships in 1968 uh, on Centre Court. And I was going to see my, my hero, who was Rod Laver. Um, and it was raining a bit when I headed off. I thought it was bound to stop raining soon. And I got to Wimbledon, it was still raining, and it was still raining in the afternoon, it was still raining in the early evening. I waited there all, all that day, hoping I'd see Labour, but he never appeared. The rain never stopped, and uh, the whole day was a washout, really. Um, and they didn't get any refunds in those days, Amanda. And these days, you get a refund. You'd be told to come back, give them a ticket for the next day. But in those days, it was just it was just tough. Well, that's the thing about sport, though, isn't it? It's unpredictability. If we knew the outcome at the start, it wouldn't be sport, even if that's to do with weather. It's not unpredictable anymore because, of course, they've got a cover over the centre court, which I think they have in Melbourne now, don't they? Yes, indeed. Yeah, so a 14-year-old who got a centre court ticket in Melbourne or in Wimbledon these days would be able to guarantee the game. And David Berry is the author of A People's History of Tennis, joining us from London. David, it's great to have you join us on Sporty. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Amanda. Lovely talking to you. Producer for Sporty is Damien Rabbit, and I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.